Welcome, my name is Pastor Scotty Bockhaus, and we thank you for taking some time to listen to some audio recordings from the pulpit of the Riverview Baptist Church. Our desire is to show the Lord high, holy, and lift it up, as well as try to be a blessing to those through the Word of God. Please enjoy this message, and we pray that it will be a blessing to your life. And if you wouldn't mind to take your copy of the Word of God and turn with me to the New Testament book of Galatians. The New Testament book of Galatians and Galatians and chapter number 4. The book of Galatians and chapter number 4. We are having a very special message today with our Christmas day that we have. What a great day to be in God's house than actual Christmas. We want to bring an appropriate message speaking about the Lord and whom he is. Again, we're so thankful that you're here. The book of Galatians in chapter number four has one of the most powerful verses packed into this passage. One of the most impactful, one of the most uh, layered, one of the most important verses in the word of God. We find it in the book of Galatians in chapter number four. The book of Galatians chapter number four, remember as we turn to the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, then we come to the book of Acts, then we come to 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, and the book of Galatians. Galatians in chapter number four. The book of Galatians chapter four, and if you wouldn't mind, notice with me starting at verse number four. Galatians chapter four and verse four, the Bible says this, but... When the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his son made of a woman made under the law to redeem them that were under the law that we might <coughs> receive the adoption of sons. Because ye are sons, God hath sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts crying, Abba, Father. Wherefore, thou art no more a servant but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. And if you're in the habit of marking things in your Bible, would you mark a phrase that we find in the book of Galatians in chapter number four? The book of Galatians chapter four, and notice with me in verse four, the phrase, when the fullness of the time was come. When the fullness of the time was come. And with this, we're going to explore and examine, especially verse number four of Galatians 4, 4, of how powerful of a verse this is speaking about the coming of Jesus Christ when the fullness of time was come. If you don't mind, let's go to the Lord together and let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you again for you being a wonderful God. And as we come up to you today, we're just asking that you would open up your word in a very special way. That we know that we have some guests here and we have our regular folks. We're just asking that no matter who they are, that you would open up the Bible in a special way to make us all go wow. We know that you have a promise in your Bible to open up our eyes that we may behold wondrous things from thy law. And we're asking that you would amaze us today through your word, that we would look at it and go, wow. And that we'd be amazed by you about what a great God you are to put this together at the right time, at the right place, with the right situation, and to show that everything that you do is perfect and everything that you do is right. I'm asking that we would trust you more because of this word. 
Fill me with your precious spirit so you can get your own work accomplished today. Thank you again for all that you do. Help our eyes to be upon you even now. In Jesus' name, amen. When the fullness of time was come. What a powerful phrase that we have here. When the fullness of time was come. If you don't mind, let's explore this prophecy, this promise, this fulfillment in the book of Galatians chapter 4 and verse 4. The very first thing I want to bring to your attention as we break down this verse is when the fullness of time was come. When the fullness of time was come, what we see with this uh, phrase here is fulfilled history fulfilled history when the fullness of time was come. This phrase carries the idea when the perfect time in history was come. When the perfect thing, when God had laid everything in order, the very perfect time was when Jesus Christ came, that everything light up in history. That when Jesus Christ was born, there was a lot of things that had happened in the world to go ahead and lay the foundation for the most perfect time of history. What we see is that we have several world empires that have come since the Old Testament. When the Old Testament passed, we had the Persian Empire who was now in charge. We see that in the book of Ezra. We see that in the book of Nehemiah. We see that at the tail end of Daniel that the Persian Empire had come. After the Persian Empire came, you had the Greek Empire by Alexander the Great. After that, you had the Roman Empire. Both of these Rome, uh, empire, Rome and Greek, are going to lay a foundation that is going to help the most perfect time for Jesus Christ to come. Isn't it amazing that God is not just the God of the Hebrew people? God is the God who's in control of all of history and that he used these other historical world empires to lay a foundation to have the most perfect time in history come. Let's start with the Greeks, the Greek empire. When the Greek empire under Alexander the Great began to conquer the world in approximately 333 BC, Alexander the Great was the youngest general to... Uh, <coughs> ever come to a world supremacy. In fact, Alexander the Great, by the end of his life, had never lost a battle. He is the only world general <laughs> of a major uh, world power to be able to claim that, that he never lost a battle. At 333 BC, he began to go from Europe and begin to come into Asia to become into that Middle East area and he began to conquer as he went. As he came he took down cities and destroyed them like Tyre and Sidon. He came to other cities and uh, and converted them. And then he began to rebuild cities. Because Alexander the Great had been taught in a very special way that the Greek culture was the best culture, he also employed the Greek culture, the Greek thought and the Greek language to everywhere he went. So when the time of Christ had come, because Alexander the Great had conquered the known world and had transferred Greek culture and Greek language, what happened when Jesus Christ was born, no matter where you went in the known world, there was someone who was able to speak Greek. There was someone who would be able to understand the language. And this is going to be important because the New Testament was written in a common Greek language. 
So it was made so the gospel can spread rapidly because it had a common language. You didn't have to take the Bible and translate it to this language here and this language here and this language here. That what happened is that no matter where you went, the Bible and the gospel was able to spread worldwide rapidly because there was a common language that everyone was able to relate to. Everyone was able to understand. This is part of the donation that Alexander the Great came. Now, Alexander the Great was not a Christian. He was not a believer. He was not a Jewish person. But God used this heathen king to pave the way for Jesus Christ to come at the perfect time in history. Beyond the Greeks, the Greek world was eventually conquered by the Roman Empire. Now, when the Roman Empire came, they built a very vast empire. Now, in order to maintain a vast empire, you have to have some way of administrating this empire to make sure that it doesn't break off within, it doesn't collapse. And during the Roman time, they had two major feats that are going to be employed to allow the gospel to spread rapidly. The first thing would be the Roman roads. That in order to have uh, news travel quickly, the Romans took time to build the roads. In fact, their roads were a lot better than the Wisconsin Department of Transportation because the Roman roads still exist in a lot of places throughout Europe. You could actually see them. They still stand, which is a lot better than some of the roads we have around here. They built their roads to last. In addition, not only were they built to last, but the Romans understood that in order to have things travel quickly, you needed to make the roads as straight as possible. So what would happen? in order to make the roads as straight as possible, if they came into a valley, they would fill up the valley so the road would be straight. You wouldn't have to dip down. If there was a mountain in the way, they would knock the mountain out of the way or build through it so the roads would be straight. So you didn't have to worry about elevation. It would be straight. In addition, instead of turning left or right, they would get rid of the obstacles so the road would be straight. They put a lot of work into their roads so that way couriers, uh, travelers, messengers, businessmen, armies could all travel on these roads and they wouldn't have to worry about all the dips and turns and detours and hills and valleys and everything. They had built it so that way they could administrate their empire as quickly as possible, as efficiently as possible. Well, because they had laid that in place, what this is going to happen is going to allow a quick, rapid traveling of the gospel for the disciples and the apostles to be able to travel throughout the known world with relative ease because the roads were straight and they were maintained. In addition, the Romans had also brought something else that in order to have their empire to be maintained, they had something they called the Pax Ramona, which means the Roman peace. That the Romans made sure that these roads had garrisons all along the way, so that way there would be no bandits, no robbers, no (coughs) foreign armies. This would be a safe way to travel so messengers can travel, merchants can travel, (coughs) businessmen can travel, armies can travel, 
all in relative safety. So you didn't have to worry about the dangers of traveling all throughout the Roman Empire, which was the biggest empire at this time that had made the Mediterranean Sea a Roman lake, that it traveled from Europe to the Middle East to North Africa, that no matter where you went in the Roman Empire, you had roads that were straight and they, each of these roads were maintained in garrison by the Roman army. And you could travel anywhere you wanted with relative ease and relative safety and relative peace. This is going to allow a rapid transmission of the gospel throughout the known world. But there's one more element that was there set for the world foundation. And this would be the Hebrew scriptures. The Hebrew scriptures. That the Hebrew people, of course, had been settled in the promised land, the Levant, uh, the Holy Land, whatever you would like to call it. And the Hebrew people had settled there and they were going to be content to settle there. However, because of their disobedience, what had happened is that the northern kingdom of Israel, Samaria, was destroyed in 722 BC by the Assyrians. The southern kingdom of Judah was destroyed in 586 BC by the Babylonians. Now what happened, both the Assyrian Empire and the Babylonian Empire, what happened when they would conquer a land, they would take the people of that land and they would spread them out all throughout the empire. So when the Assyrians took the northern kingdom, they took those people and put some here, put some here, put some here, put some here. Then they would conquer a different empire and they would put him here, put him here, put him here. Now their way of thinking is that if they put a whole bunch of displaced people together that didn't speak a common language, they wouldn't be able to uprise with a common unity and destroy the empire. That was their idea. But God had something else in mind. That when the Babylonians came and they took the Jewish people and they scattered them here and scattered them here and scattered them here and scattered them here. We know that in the book of Ezra chapter 1 that Cyrus the Great of the Persians allowed the people to come back. But very few of the Hebrew people returned. Most of them stayed scattered. Now what happened is that they developed a different type of gathering system because they could not go to the temple. They developed something called a synagogue. Now with the synagogues, they developed one synagogue for every 10 Hebrew families. So if you had a city that had 30 Hebrew families, you would have three synagogues. Now, each one of these synagogues would be a place where they would have a full copy of the Old Testament scriptures available for people to copy for themselves or to have for themselves, but it would be a center. So as the Hebrew people are now scattered all throughout the Roman Empire, what you would also have is Old Testament scriptures readily available for all people. So what happened, you had a common language that everyone throughout the known world could understand the scriptures. You had it so, <clears throat> you had a Roman peace with Roman roads that you could travel throughout the known world with relative ease, relative peace to allow a quick travel. In addition, you had Hebrew scriptures that you didn't have to go to one place to get, but they were scattered so you could read the Bible for yourself. All of this was set at the perfect time and the perfect place to allow the gospel to spread quickly when Jesus Christ was born 
died on the cross and rose again and allowed the quick transmission of the gospel. What a great God to put things up when the fullness of time was come. Fulfilled history. In addition, notice in Galatians chapter 4 and verse 4, but when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his son. God sent forth his son. Not only do we have fulfilled history, but we have fulfilled geography. Fulfilled geography. What do we mean by this? Well, God sent his son in the perfect time in history, but also in the perfect place. Israel was in the middle of three continents. They had Egypt to the, and Africa to the south. They had Asia to the east and Europe to the west. In order to travel from one continent to the other, you would have to travel through this promised land. It was the literal center of the world. And it allowed, when travelers would come, they would come right in the middle of the events and be able to hear about Jesus Christ, to hear the message of the disciples. And of course, they would be able to travel and bring that back with relative easy back to their homelands. Now, this was interesting because in the Galilee area where Jesus Christ set up his headquarters in Capernaum, they said at any time in the city of Capernaum, you had 40 different language groups that would be there. This would allow where people would travel to get to one place to another. They would have to travel through this promised land area where they could receive the news. So not only did you have missionaries and not only did you have disciples and apostles who could travel relative easy throughout the empire, you also had it so people would naturally travel through this land and they could hear the news themselves. One of the great examples would be in Acts chapter 8 where you had the Ethiopian eunuch coming from Ethiopia, who was happened to be the treasure master for his queen, Candace. He happened to be traveling through the area. As he traveled through the area, he picked up a copy of the Old Testament scriptures for himself. As he picked up the Old Testament scriptures for himself and he's going back into Ethiopia, he's reading it. And as he's reading it, God happened to send a preacher by the name of Philip to come up and said, hey, do you understand what you're reading? He says, how can I unless someone explain it? And so Philip came up and beginning at that same scriptures preached to him Jesus. That was an example of how it would work. That Jesus Christ, when the fullness of time was come, Jesus Christ came in the perfect place of history. Not only did he come to the perfect place in history, he came at the perfect geography inside of history. But we go on, we see something else. Notice in Galatians chapter 4 and verse 4. But when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his son made of a woman. Not only do we have fulfilled history, we have fulfilled geography, but we have fulfilled prophecy. Fulfilled prophecy. When the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his son made of a woman. Now this is important prophecy because at the very beginning when Adam and Eve had sinned, you know the story when the first woman ate the first man out of house and home. The very instant when that happened, God had walked in the garden and he gave a promise 
to Adam and to Eve that he was going to send forth a redeemer. That is Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15. We call that in fancy terms the proto-evangelium or the very first promise of a redeemer. The very first promise that God was going to send forth a son to die for our sins. Adam and Eve sinned from the garden and the very first thing that God said was, I have a way that I'm going to forgive you of your sins. I'm going to send forth a son from the seed of a woman. That was his promise. God further on develops this prophecy and explains to Abraham that you are going to have for a son and he is going to bless all the nations. He goes on and gives it a further definition through David. That David who was of the lineage of Abraham. David, you are going to have a son and not only are you going to have a son but this son is going to sit on the kingdom forever. Someone who's going to be blood related to you. And so these prophecies continue to add and build up until Jesus Christ was born in a manger by Mary. Now remember that Joseph was Jesus's stepfather, that God was his father. And that we know that according to the Bible, that our transference of a sin nature comes from the man. So when your kids act up, remember, gentlemen, it's your fault. Your sin nature was transferred by them. And that Jesus Christ, when he was born of a woman, was fulfilled of prophecy that God had promised back in Isaiah chapter number 7, that God was going to send forth a son who was going to be born of a virgin. You understand that the virgin birth of Jesus Christ was a miracle to show that Jesus Christ was different. That this had never happened before and will never happen again. That have a woman who is able to bear a child not because of any kind of activity, but supernatural event. And Jesus Christ was born. And when Jesus Christ was born, he was born of Mary, who, by the way, who was blood related to David. And then, of course, Jesus Christ inherited the throne from his stepfather, Joseph, fulfilling all the terms of prophecy that he was made of a woman. And it was a fulfillment of prophecy that Jesus Christ came. So when the fullness of time was come, fulfilled history. <clears throat> God sent forth his son, fulfilled geography. Made of a woman, fulfilled prophecy. Notice there's a fulfilled purpose now. Notice, but when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his son, made of a woman, made under the law. Why? To redeem them that were under the law. That we might receive the adoption of sons. We have a fulfilled purpose. Why did all of these things come at the right time, at the right place? It's because Jesus Christ, who was God, robed in flesh, came upon this earth. But when Jesus Christ was born, he was born for one purpose. Jesus Christ was not born for the purpose of being a good teacher. Jesus Christ was not born for the main purpose of being the example. Jesus Christ was not born on this world just to be a good person. Jesus Christ was born for the purpose of dying on the cross for your sins and mine. Jesus Christ was born to die. You say, that sounds horrible to have a child that was born for the purpose of dying. Well, it's because of God so loving the world. You understand that heaven is a perfect place. That's why we want to go there. 
In heaven, there's no more sickness, no more pain, no more sorrow, no more death, no more tears. It's perfect. What really makes heaven worth going there is that God is there. And the way that the Bible describes God is that he is perfect, perfect, perfect. We would say it that he is holy, holy, holy. That God is perfect. And just using logic, you can't set something that's not perfect and place it into a perfect place. It would ruin it. For example, many of us had kids who were playing in the snow or had to go work in the snow. And if they work in the snow enough, they're going to get muddy and get all the nasty stuff in there. What happens if they take their muddy, nasty clothes and put it on a clean pile of clothes my wife just got through washing? It'd make the whole thing dirty, wouldn't it? Well, the same thing's true about heaven. That if something that's not perfect enters into a perfect place like heaven, then heaven would no longer be perfect. God has to protect heaven and make sure that it always remains perfect. And so no one is allowed to go into heaven who is not perfect, which now disqualifies all of us. For example, Bible sets God's rules of holiness in what we call the Ten Commandments. In the Ten Commandments, one of the commandments is thou shall not uh, bear false witness. We would say it this way, don't tell lies. Well, let's just do a quick survey. How many of you ever broke that commandment you've ever told a lie? Raise your hand, right? If you're not raising your hand, you're a liar. All of us have. Well, the Bible gives another one of in the Ten Commandments to honor thy father and thy mother. Well, the Bible says we're supposed to obey our folks. Well, let's just do another survey. How many have ever disobeyed your folks? Raise your hand, right? Parents are looking at their kids to make sure they're raising their hands. We've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. There's none righteous, no, not one. Now, every once in a while, I'll have someone that say, well, preacher, I think that when I that heaven's like a weight system, that if my good works somehow outweigh my bad, I'll be able to slide right in. Well, we can understand why people would think that, but that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says that the qualification to get into heaven is perfection. And that if you're not perfect, you cannot enter heaven. Maybe I could do a different illustration. Let's say that we had a dartboard in the back. And the rules are is that Whoever hits the bullseye each and every time can go into heaven. But if you miss the bullseye, you cannot go to heaven. So let's say that we line three of us up. And so the first guy gets and he takes aim and he shoots and he misses it by this much. Then we have someone else who gets, takes their turn and when they shoot, they hit the outside edge. And then I take my turn and I shoot and I hit the side wall. Now, according to the rules, who's going to heaven? Nobody is. You see, it doesn't matter if you missed it by this much or you missed it by this much. If you missed it, you missed it. Maybe we could do a different illustration. So let's imagine that I live a good life, a great life, and I only sin three times a day. So <laughs> I tell a little white lie. I get aggravated at my wife and I break the speed limit. Now, if that's all I did in one day, that's living a great life. I'm a pastor of a New Testament church, but unfortunately, I don't live that great of a life. But let's just imagine that you lived a great life and you only sin three times a day. That, those are small things. Tell a little white lie, get aggravated at my wife or kids, take your pick. And <laughs> I break the speed limit, which is very easy to do. So let's imagine that's all I did. Every day, I only ha uh, allowed three sins. Do you know at the end of one year, I would have racked up 
thousand sins? Just living a great life, three sins a day, at age 20, that is 20,000 sins. At age 50, that would be 50,000 sins. Well, God's requirement is perfection. So let's imagine that I lived at age 50, living a great life, sinning three times a day, and I stood before God with 50,000 sins to my account. Would I look that good anymore? I would not. And by the way, we all do more than three sins a day. The Bible says that in order to get to heaven, we have to be perfect. But none of us are perfect. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. There is none righteous. No, not one. Well, you say, preacher, this is bad news. Unfortunately, I've got even worse news. The Bible says in Romans chapter 6 and verse 23, For the wages of sin is is death. Now a wage is something we earn. For example, when we go to work, we earn money. We call that a wage or a payment. Because I work, I earn money. The Bible says, for the wages of sin is death. The word death carries the idea of a separation. So if you could imagine that we had a casket here, and we had a person in here, we're doing a funeral. We would say that the person inside of the casket is dead. Why? Because their body is there, but what makes them them is separated out. Does that make sense? The Bible says because heaven is perfect and we don't deserve to go to a perfect place, we deserve to be separated from that perfect place. We deserve death. Now when we die, according to the Bible, there's only two places to go. A wonderful place called heaven or an awful place called hell. Now, why do people go to hell? Because we don't deserve to go to heaven and there's no other place to go. Now, you say, that's really bad news. I understand, but here's the good news. God finished off the verse in Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. That God didn't want to see a single person go to that awful place called hell. So what happened is that Jesus Christ, who was born of a woman, who came at the perfect place in history, the perfect geography in history, to fulfill all of prophecy, was God robed himself in flesh and came on this earth. He lived the same life that you and I lived. Went through the same temptations, went through the same troubles, went through the same heartbreaks. Then he died on the cross to pay for your sins and mine. Notice with me in Galatians chapter 4 and verse number 5. To redeem them that were under the law. Now we're all under the law. Remember we talked about the Ten Commandments, God's rules for holiness. Because we violated the law and we disobeyed our folks. Because we violated the law and we told a little white lie. Because we violated the law and violated one of the other Ten Commandments. Under the law for the wages of sin is death. But notice this. He chose to redeem us. When Jesus Christ died on the cross, he paid for your price for your and mine. The word redeemed is a very special word. It comes back from the Roman days. And in the Roman Empire, 75% of the population were slaves. And so a lot of the common words used for slavery was brought into the common language. The word redeemed means to buy back 
as from a slave market. If you can imagine a scene that someone is on the chopping block. There is an auction going on and he is going to be purchased. What Jesus Christ did is he purchased our price. He redeemed us. He bought us back with his blood. Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins and mine. He did it to redeem us, to buy us back, to purchase our price. Notice as it goes on, what's the purpose? Why? To redeem them that were under the law. Why? That we might receive the adoption of sons. And because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. You understand that God loved you so much, he didn't want to just die for you just because you're a person. He died for you because he desires fellowship. He wants to be close to you. He doesn't want you in verse number seven, wherefore thou art no more a servant, but a son. But if a son, then an heir of God through Christ, that God loved you so much, he wants to spend time with you. And he has purchased your price through his son, Jesus Christ, so you can have fellowship with him. So you can have a close fellowship with him. How close? It says crying Abba Father. That phrase Abba Father is the same as a crying son looking up to daddy. Daddy, daddy, daddy. That's how close God wants to be with you. Is that when you go up to him, you don't have to say, dear God, Jehoshaphat and God of the fat brothers and Jeroboam and Rehoboam and the Boam brothers. He wants us to be able to be so close to God that we can say, Daddy, Daddy, Daddy. And he wants us to be that close that we can say, Daddy, I need help. Daddy, I need you to help me. You understand that's a different relationship than going, Dear King, Oh, great king, wonderful king. Can I have a moment of your time, dear king? Do I have to set an appointment? You know, there's something about a father and children that children should always feel like they could go up to their daddy at any time. Daddy, daddy, daddy. It could be something, daddy, I need help. Daddy, I need help. And there's something about a parent listening to their children that they could tell those cries when they mean it, when there's something going on and they could go and run and say, what's going on? How can I help? What can I be available? Daddy, daddy. I'm so glad that that's how close God wants to be with us. That we have the privilege of going up to him and saying, Daddy, Daddy. That was the whole purpose. Why did Jesus Christ die for us? He died so we can have a personal relationship with God. Not a distant relationship. Not a relationship where we say, all right, God, I'll show up every now and again. Of course, today is Christmas, so forgive me if you fit in this category, but we have what is called C&E Christians. What are those? Those are Christians who only show up to church Christmas and Easter. Do you know that God wants to be your God, not just for Christmas? And God wants to be your God, not just for Easter. God wants to be your God on Monday. He wants to be your God on a Thursday. He even wants to be your God on a Friday night. He wants you to have that close relationship with him at any time. That's how much God loves you. For God so loved the world 
that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And because God want, is not willing that any should perish but all should come to repentance, God just didn't send Jesus through any time at any place. But Jesus Christ came at the very greatest time in history. He did it in a time where history was fulfilled, where they had a common language that everyone can hear and understand the story of redemption. He did it at the time where the story of Jesus Christ can spread rapidly because of the Roman roads and the Roman plate. Peace. It was at a place where people had access to the scriptures. There was always a Jewish remnant anywhere throughout the empire that they can go and see the scriptures for themselves. He came at the perfect geography so that way people had to go through. It wasn't done in a corner. It wasn't done in a backwater town. It wasn't done in a mountain village that everyone goes to. It was put in the very center of world events. Even today, where does many of our news events come from? The Middle East. And Jesus Christ came at the perfect time of prophecy. Fulfilling every little thing that Jesus Christ did. You understand many people believe that prophecies are a vague thing. That could be fulfilled in anything. Not the prophecies of Jesus Christ. It talked about hundreds of years where Jesus was going to be born. Micah chapter 5 verse 2 speaks about he was going to be born in Bethlehem. It spoke about when he was going to be born. Daniel chapter 7 and Daniel chapter number 9. It talked about all these specific events that he was going to be born of a virgin. It talked about his kingly line. That if you were to line up all of the birth, uh, the prophecies, just about the birth of Jesus Christ, the odds of all of that coming together by chance are astronomical. You understand God came and brought Jesus at the perfect time and the perfect place of history, of time, of geography to fulfill all of scripture. Why? Because God wants to have a close, personal relationship with you. How can I have a relationship with God? First of all, are you 100% sure if you die today? Are you 100% sure you'd go to heaven? You understand the Bible tells you how you can know without a doubt so you don't have to hope or guess or think. 1 John 5.13 These things have I written unto you that believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. God wants us to know with evidence, with proof. He doesn't want us to hope or guess or think. He wants you to know for sure, without a doubt, that you could go with a Bible answer. How do you know that you're going to heaven? And you could be able to take the Bible and show me from the Bible for yourself. He wants you to know that detail, that much. But once you know Jesus Christ is your savior, he wants you to maintain a personal fellowship. There is a difference between a relationship and a fellowship. For example, my kids are always going to be my kids no matter what. Nothing can happen that can change that relationship. However, if one of my kids decided to come up and slap me in the face, our fellowship would be affected at that time. And if they slap me in the face and then ask me for $20, would I be that inclined to give them $20 at the time? Not until that fellowship is restored. You understand? God just doesn't want to have a relationship with us. He wants to have a fellowship. And you can have a close fellowship with God that you could cry out to any time to God and say, Daddy, Daddy, I have a father, I have a father. And he says, I love you. Let me help you. 
That's the type of fellowship that he desires to have. So dear friend, two questions. First of all, are you 100% sure if you were to die today, are you 100% sure from the Bible that you'd be going to heaven? If not, let me tell you, there's good news. In just a moment, we're going to have what is called an invitation. And in an invitation, we're going to invite you to respond. And it'd be our great privilege to have someone take an open Bible and to show you from the Bible how you can know without a doubt that Jesus Christ is your Savior and that you can be forgiven of your sins. The second question, dear friend, if you do know for sure that Jesus is your Savior, how close is your fellowship with God? Is it distant? Are you far away? Can you go up to him boldly and be able to go, Daddy, Daddy, I need help? Or do you think that you have to fix some things before you could ask him of anything? You know, you are always as close to God as you want to be. Some of you have heard that old saying where there was a man and a wife in a truck and the wife looked at the distance between her and her husband and looked and said, I remember the days where we would drive down the road and your arm would be around me, uh, around me and we would just be so close as we drove. Well, the man looks at the distance between the man and the woman and says, I didn't move. You understand God never moves. It's us that move away. And we're always as close to God as you want to be. That means where you are right now, that's where you want to be. That's where you've chosen to be. But you could always be closer. And God desires for you to be closer. God has done all kinds of things. He has arranged history for the purpose of you being saved. He has arranged all of prophecy for the purpose of you being close to him. What more does he have to do? He has already moved all of history, everything to put this in order. What a wonderful God. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. But when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. And because you are sons, God hath sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father, wherefore thou art no more a servant, but a son. And if a son, an heir of God through Christ. Thank you for listening to this audio message. This is Pastor Scotty Bockhaus, and I encourage you to take this information that you just received and make a specific decision to follow after the Lord. If you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, let me beg you to take the time to receive Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. If you are saved, I encourage you to make a decision in your life to help you get closer with the Lord. If there's anything specific we can do to be a blessing or to pray for you, we encourage you. Look us up on the internet at riverviewbc.com. Once again, that's riverviewbc.com. Or if you would prefer to call us, you can give us a call at area code 920 530-6308. Once again, that number is 920-530-6308. If there's anything we can do to be a blessing or an encouragement to you, please let us know. We would love to make ourselves available. 
Thank you.